0: And grab a seat. Well, if you read the Bible um, and you look for a particular thread, uh, and if that particular thread that you're looking for is the subject of man and man's authority on earth, let me tell you what you'll find. Okay, again, if you read the Bible and you're looking for a particular thread, a biblical theme of man and man's authority and how it interacts with God and God's authority, let me tell you what you'll find. First of all, you'll find that God made man for the purpose of sharing his authority. Okay, Genesis chapter two, we find something called the cultural mandate. It is where God actually gave um instruction to humans, pre-sin, pre-fall, and he said, I want you to go and I want you to have dominion. I want you to have rule. He, he actually created man for the purpose of having a co-regency with them that we would actually be extensions of his authority and his kingdom and his rule, okay? The other thing you're gonna find after that is that man has a really hard time staying in his jurisdiction, that we like God's job, and that we're always bucking against God for his job. That's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. Man said, actually, I think I want to be God. <laughs> and Satan actually is the agency in many ways behind that, right? Because Satan wants to pull all created things into a state of rebellion against God. That's Satan's ultimate goal. So, so sin uh, had its agency through man's rebellion leading to a Genesis 3 reality, which is the one we live in right now. The next thing you're going to find in the Bible, if you're pulling on that thread, is then you're going to find that God is patiently sending witnesses into this world, pleading and inviting patiently humans back into the role that he created them to do, to be uh, extensions of his kingdom reign. But here's the other thing you're going to find. You're going to find that at some point, God will and God must end evil human power. Indefinitely. Okay, that's the whole sermon. Jesus gave a a parable that very much illustrates these realities Um, when interestingly in Luke chapter 20, why don't you go there really quick, keep your finger in in Daniel, but go there just really briefly. Um, Jesus was interacting with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple and, uh, and they had a real issue with his authority or his claim to have authority. They said, who are you to have this authority? Now, why are they concerned about his authority? Because they see that it's not compatible with their authority, and they like to be in charge. Jesus is pushing on, uh, in many ways, their authority, their power structure. It's threatening them. So they come to challenge Jesus, and uh, and they're asking, by what authority do you have this? Now, there's a lot to the the story that we're not going to get into, but what I want to remind you of is that Jesus brings a parable to their attention. And you're familiar with the parable. The parable goes like this. There is a, a man, an investor, who planted a vineyard. He made an investment. He spent his money and his time and his resources in order to create a vineyard. And he did this like investors do so that they can generate passive income. So he creates the vineyard. He makes the investment. Then he leases it out to some tenants so that they can make some money as well. But the, uh, the arrangement, of course, would be that they send you know, uh, the, the fruit and, and some of the money back to the, the owner. So the owner leaves, and he goes off into a far land, and then the servants, or the, pardon me, the, the, the leasers, leasees, whatever they are, they, they begin to act like the vineyard is theirs. And so the vineyard owner sends a servant, and they mock him, and they shamefully treat him, and they send him away. So he sends another servant, and then another servant, and another servant, and they beat them and they send them back, one after the other. And what's happening here? Well, the vineyard owner, which of course is God, uh, planted a vineyard, which of course is Israel, but also really all of humanity, and he's calling to collect. He's saying, hey, I made this investment. And God sent, what, prophets after prophets after prophets, because God sends a witness. He always sends a witness to call people back to conformity. So he sends a witness after witness, and and, and they didn't listen. All Israel, all through the years, they beat the prophets and send them away. So, the owner of the vineyard—this is Jesus' parable again. The owner of the vineyard says, "What will I do? I will send my son. Why? Because the son has all authority of the father. I'll send my son, and surely the tenants will honor the son as though it were me. And what did the tenants do? They kill the son. They kill the son." So then Jesus ends with this. Look at it. Luke 20, verse 15. They threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is Jesus' question. What do you guys think the owners of the vineyard should do? Here's the answer. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, the Pharisees aren't stupid. They know what Jesus is getting at here. He knows that in this parable, he's, he's, he's saying that you're the vineyard owners. You're gonna kill the son. You're gonna kill me. And guess what? God's not gonna tolerate it. Now, listen, this is so important. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them. This is, I just, I can imagine if, if I was writing this in a screenplay that, that Jesus sort of pauses with a level of intensity and focus and the camera sort of zooms in on the sweat on the brows of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus looks them dead in the eye and he says this, what then is this written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, quoting quoting Psalm 118. In In other words, you guys are gonna reject me and you guys are gonna kill me, but I'm actually gonna be the foundation of an entirely new thing of which you will not belong. And then it gets even more intense. He then quotes Isaiah 18, and he says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is, is, is these are fighting words. He's saying, he's quoting a, a obviously messianic psalm, Psalm 118. He's saying, the chief cornerstone, you're going to reject it, and then it's going to become the foundation, and that stone is actually going to smash to pieces anyone who is not rightly aligned with it. That's pretty crazy. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because, as you probably noticed in our scripture reading, our text today is about a stone, a stone that does some serious smashing, right? A stone that does some serious smashing. I think Jesus, when he gave this parable, I think that he had Daniel chapter two right here in the middle of his mind. Jesus actually loved the book of Daniel. His favorite name for himself came right out of the book of Daniel. It was what? Son of man, which comes out of Daniel what? Anybody? Nope. Two plus five. There you go. You get it. Good job. Daniel chapter seven, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, Jesus picks that name to call him. So, so Jesus is very much in tune with the book of Daniel. And as he is referring to these messianic uh, uh, psalms and, and this messianic prophecy from Isaiah about the stone becoming the foundation, he is, he is absolutely tuned into what we're going to look at today. What we're going to look at today is one of the most important biblical prophecies in all of the Bible. It's so profound. It's so encouraging. I'm, I've been so excited to open it and look at it with you guys. What we're going to see today, what our passage is going to lead us to consider is, first of all, the sum total and the sum outcome of the era of godless government. We're going to see the beginning and the end of God's kingdom fully materialized. This passage is going to lead us to consider where our allegiance lies, which kingdom we truly belong to. This passage is going to lead us to consider why God has put us where he has put us. Could it be that he still wants you to operate in a certain way based off of where he's placed you? So that's just a quick... Introduction to what we're going to look at. Let's dive right in. We have a lot of material to cover. Let me just get you up to speed if you weren't here. Last week, last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 2 in which we saw uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, which is the, uh, the empire of the day that really ruled the entirety of the ancient world. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, very powerful. In fact, he was the most powerful man in the world. He was the king of kings, according to Daniel's own estimation. He was about 30 uh, when he came to, to power and the Neo-Babylonian Empire came to rise and, and he had a dream, a dream that he knew was threatening to him in some way and he's having a hard time understanding what it is or perhaps maybe he's even forgotten it. So he calls all of his wise men, his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, all those that have all knowledge from all ends of the earth and he calls them into a room and he says, okay guys, guess what? You're gonna tell me what my dream was or I'm gonna kill you and burn your house. Oh, Okay, and they're like, well, it doesn't work that way. You're supposed to give us the dream, and then we feed you a line of uh, horse manure about what it means, and Nebuchadnezzar's not stupid. He goes, no, because you're gonna lie to me. So you're gonna tell me what the dream is, and then you're gonna tell me what it means. And they're like, no one can do that but the gods, right? Daniel finds out that this is happening. He finds out that him and his crew and the, the, the school of Babylon is all going to be swept up in this giant execution that's going to take place. And so Daniel has the faith to say, hey, our God can answer this visions. So he goes to his friends and they pray and they ask the Lord and then Daniel's head hits the pillow or whatever and he actually ends up having the vision. God gives him and grants him the vision. Now we're going to pick up right here in verse 25, chapter 2. Then Ariok brought, the, brought in Daniel before the king in haste. You better believe he's in haste he doesn't want to lose his head. Get this guy in here and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, which uh, means Baal save the king. That was the name that uh, that Nebuchadnezzar gave him, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Dan ans- Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanter, magician or astrologer, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the note it? What? Latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Now, before he uh, recounts the vision, let me just point out something. First of all, I love the way Daniel first introduces the God of Israel to Nebuchadnezzar. It's very, very broad in its scope. He says, hey, I just want to let you know your gods are lame, and there's a God you don't know about. He doesn't call him the covenant name of God. He just keeps it very general. There's a God that you don't know about, the God of heaven, uh, and he's gonna be the one to interpret the dream. So J- Daniel wants to make sure that after he gives this vision's interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly who to give the credit to, okay? So he introduces him to the, for the probably for the first time to, to Yahweh, right? And he does so in a very generic way. Uh, and he then says that this vision that you've been given, it belongs to the latter days, it's things that are gonna happen later in the future. Now, note this though, even though that what happens in this vision actually won't happen in the lifetime of Nebuchadnezzar, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have great relevance and application to his life. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given him the vision in the first place. So I just wanna make a quick point here that even though sometimes biblical prophecy refers to things that may not happen in our lifetime, it doesn't mean that they don't have great application and relevance to our life, okay? So some of this stuff we're going to talk about today, it, it probably most likely is happening in the future, right? And so we may not see it happen in our lifetime, but it still has relevance to us. Verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you, uh, he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to you or to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That's all review. Now, let's get into the new section here. Now, Daniel is going to recount the vision. Here it is. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So, God gives Daniel the same exact vision, like a carbon copy, um, a carbon copy of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, and so he's able to recount it exactly the way Nebuchadnezzar experienced it. And the vision of it's this, is of this image. Uh, the image is, is, is sort of great and terrifying and, and commanding of, of power and authority, and it's standing before the person having the vision, and it's glowing. And according to Daniel, It's frightening. 32, the head of this image, so picture the head, uh, was of fine gold. And then we, we move down, the camera is sort of dropping down from the head of the image down to its chest and arms, it's of silver, the middle and thighs are of bronze, and its legs are of iron, but its feet are partly of iron and partly of clay. Random enough? Confusing enough? Good. It's job security for me. Okay. Okay. As he looked, now, now, he sees the image, he knows that the image is is made of these different metallic substances, and even though they're all different metals, they're all one statue. And what is the statue an image of? A man. I don't mean the interpretation; just in general. It's a man. It's a man, okay? There we go. It's a man. Um, And as he looked, now the camera's going to pan over. As he looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands. So Daniel looks over now and he sees probably like a mountain off to the side. And out of that mountain is hewn by no human hands a, a stone from that mountain. And it's going to get lobbed at the statue or at right, the image. So it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. So the stone comes and it crushes particularly the feet of the image and broke them in pieces, Because remember, the legs are iron, but the feet are iron and clay mixed together. Then, uh, so the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the wind. So they were blown away in a gust of wind, uh, completely gone, completely removed, like, a, like the threshing floors, it says, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is interesting. The this sm- this small stone that was pulled from this mountain strikes the feet of the image, breaks to pieces the entire statue, and, and then all of the remnants get blown away, and then the stone begins to grow until it turns into an, a, a huge mountain that literally says fills the whole earth. Okay? You ready to figure out what all that means? Well, fortunately, I don't have to guess a whole lot, because God gives Daniel the interpretation of the vision. That's the best biblical prophecy to teach is when there's actually interpretation. So otherwise, we're going to find all kinds of weird things. Okay, so let's, let's dive into it. Now, before we do, I just want to point out a couple of things. First of all, um, I, I want you to notice the types of metal and that there's a progressive and a degressive pattern there. So follow me. Gold is the most valuable of the metals, right? We go from gold, which is silver, more valuable than bronze, but less valuable than gold, and then to bronze, and then to iron, and then to iron and clay. So there's a, a degression of value. But here's what's so interesting at the same time. There's also a, a digression of uh, strength. Gold is actually the softest of the metals, right? My first wedding ring was, was gold and I had to get rid of it because it was like flat all the time. And I was like, man, I thought gold was strong and I realized that like, gold's actually pretty soft. So so it goes from softest to hardest, iron being the hardest. Interesting. It goes from uh, not only weakest to strongest, not only from most valuable to least value, it goes from heaviest to lightest. Now just keep all that in mind. That's all gonna matter here in a minute. So let's get let's get into it. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. Now, before I do that, I want to stop and I want to ask one of the most important questions we're gonna ask. Why is the image a man? Why is the image a man? And and to answer this, I wanna quote Dr. Feinberg because I think he says this so much better than I can. Uh, He's a commentator. He says, the figure of a man was employed here because God wished to make known what would transpire during man's day. The ages in which mortal man ruled the earth. Here in one panoramic sweep, the whole history of human civilization is spread before us from the days of Nebuchadnezzar to the end of time. It's wonderfully said. So he's saying the reason it's a man is because it's, it's symbolic for the age of men. Sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? The age of men, you know? I mean, it's, it's kind of the whole idea, like uh, the elves are leaving these shores because it's up to the men now. Uh, so I'm the only nerd. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> This statue represents the, the sum total of human authority, and I think it's not just meant to represent humanity uh, s- specifically. it's meant to represent the authority of man, the, the sovereignty and power of rulers and governments, if you will. So let's get into the first medal, verse 37, "You, O king, the king of kings, to whom and he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory." and into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you ruler, or rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So we don't have to guess who is the head of gold. Anybody? Nebuchadnezzar's not a trick question. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Babylon is the head of gold. Daniel just makes it very clear. You're the head of gold. Now, If you are uh, wanting to nerd out this week, go and read Daniel chapter 7, and you'll find that there's a correspondence between another vision that he's going to have later. The head of gold is the same uh, as the lion with the wings in chapter 7, okay? You can dig into that. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. So why is the head gold, and why is Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold? Okay, uh, you need to know this about Babylon. Neo, they call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire because if you remember in the book of Genesis, there was another Babel, right? That was the, 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 the ethnic roots of Babylon. Babylon, the, the, the rule, world-ruling empire, came out of Babel in Genesis. So the Neo-Babylonian Empire was really, and historians will tell you this, they were really the template for all world-ruling empires that would come later. They set the gold standard, Okay, they set the gold standard. The way that Nebuchadnezzar wielded and ruled his power in Babylon was never again matched. It was very, very unique. It set the template, it set the standard for undiluted human authority. Okay, undiluted human authority. Uh, Let me read a, a quote here from another commentator. He says, For a despot like Nebuchadnezzar, his government was the ideal type and was therefore esteemed as highly as gold. He exercised unrestricted authority over life and death. Throughout all Babylon, his word was law. No prior written law could challenge his will. So remember I said that the golds diminish in value, even though they get stronger, They diminish in value. I I believe uh, that the reason for that is because as the kingdoms come into power from Babylon to Persia to Greece, as we'll see, they begin to diminish in the amount of power that one person holds. So, uh, and and we'll see that. We'll see that. So uh, the gold, I believe, is because of the, the, the pure concentrated power that Nebuchadnezzar had. This guy could do anything he wanted. Nobody could check him. Nobody could check this guy. And, and we see that right there in the text. I mean, Daniel says, you're the king of kings. God has given you this kingdom. He's given you power and might and glory and, and all, all things, all beasts of the field, all birds, they're under your rule. Nebuchadnezzar was given this great gift of just pure power. He was a powerful guy. So he's the head of the statue. Now, Let's look at the second and third kingdoms. We don't get a lot of details about these. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise and, uh, after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. So the, the, the next metal in the, in, the, in the image is silver. And most scholars, it seems the majority report, believe that this is referring to the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, if you guys studied world history, you're familiar with the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, these two empires came together into one, the Medes and the Persians, and they became a destructive force. They were a force to be reckoned with under the power originally of King Cyrus, who comes up all throughout the Bible. Uh, King Cyrus, by the way, was the one that commissioned the rebuilding of the wall uh, and the temple in Nehemiah and Ezra. Okay, So the Medes and the Persians were a force like Babylon, but they were actually stronger... Militarily, and they had a bigger footprint and they had a longer kingdom, but there was less concentrated power at the top. Because Cyrus and and Xerxes and some of these Persian kings, they could make laws, but they couldn't annul laws. Okay, so that made them, in a way, have less pure power. Uh, A lot of people think that the two arms refer to the Medes and the Persians, kind of that division of that kingdom. Let's keep moving, we're going to lost in the weeds. Uh, this, this, the, so that's the silver, then the bronze. The bronze is more than likely referring to Alexander the Great and the who? History, Anyone? Greeks. The Greeks, yeah, Alexander the Great. And the Greeks, okay, that, that was the next one world ruling empire that really took over. Um, you guys didn't know you are getting a history lesson today, did you? Uh, the Greeks ruled from 331 to 31 BC. That's 300 years. So they were the, the longest in all three of these to rule. Uh, Alexander the Great was something else, man. He conquered the world so fast it makes your head spin, and then he died really young and then his, his kingdom was divided up between his four generals, and it ultimately, ultimately kind of ended up turning into two superpowers that were both Greek, the, uh, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucids. This is all stuff that happened in the intertestamental period between the time that Malachi was written, the last book in the Old Testament, and uh, Jesus came. This, this all happened. By the way, fun fact, okay? When Alexander the Great marched on Jerusalem and took out uh, Palestine, he came up to the temple uh, gates, and the priests went out to meet him, and they showed him the book of Daniel. And not just this passage, but it gets more clear later. He showed, they showed Alexander the Great the book of Daniel and how specifically their Bible said he was coming and how he was coming. Alexander the Great was so impressed that he didn't tear down the temple. He let them continue to offer sacrifices. Until they wouldn't let him offer a pagan sacrifice, then he got really upset, and that's the rest of the story. But that's how impressive the book of Daniel is. It's incredible. And get used to hearing about these four kingdoms, because they're going to come up a lot, okay? Uh, So so that's, uh, that's Greece, the Thais, probably referring to the Ptolemaic and Seleucid, east and west kingdoms of Greece. Now, if you're familiar with history, Greece really ruled the show until about 30 B.C., and then another empire rose to power. Who can tell me what that was? Rome. Okay, there has never been a kingdom quite like Rome. And I can't think of a better metal to, to represent the war machine that is Rome than iron. The iron legs. Rome was just so powerful and so big. I, I didn't get time to fact check this, but I heard this week someone told me that Tilla the Hun actually at one point found his way and conquered and went into Rome uh, and sieged the capital. And he took one look around and he said, this is way too much for me. And he left. He's like, this is too big. I can't handle this thing. So if you guys are history buffs, you can check my facts on that. But I thought that was interesting. The Roman Empire was massive. It, as it said in the, the, the text here, uh, verse 40, there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these Rome was the longest of these kingdoms, it, it, it really uh, was in power for 500 years, uh, and as we'll see, Rome never really officially ended, it sort of just kind of fizzled out for lots of reasons, but here's what's interesting, in the image we go from, from gold to silver to bronze to iron legs, but then the iron legs have iron feet, except the iron feet are mixed with what? Clay, okay, so what the heck's the clay? Let's figure that out, let's think about that, okay, okay. Verse 41, and as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, I wonder how many toes he had, just a good guess, 10, 10's, you know, could have been like Prince's bride, maybe he had six toes, you know, on one hand, or one foot, I don't know, probably 10, doesn't say, uh, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, so it's kind of, so the feet are like, they're, they're kind of ironish, but they're also very weak, and just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay, 42 as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they shall they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Now we could spend the next 20 minutes just trying to figure out what that is, but I'm going to try to go really fast because I don't want to get in the weeds here. What is the clay? What is it referring to? Here's some possibilities. It could be referring to the fragility of the Roman Empire in that the Roman Empire covered so much surface area and had so many different cultures and so many different types of people that they never could seem to fully hold it together. It was very fragile. Even though it was militarily strong, it was very fragile in many ways. It could be referring to the fragility of the republic because Rome was a republic for the most of its history. It could be that there was this inability for the kingdom to hold together because of that. It could be, and some people think it's because the church rose to power and the church within the s- second century, uh, uh, the, 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 the Christian church became the primary religion of Rome, but Rome was very divided on this. There was pagan Rome and Christian Rome, and they never could seem to, to, to keep it together after that. Others see that the feet perhaps are referring to a future recapitulation of Rome, a future Rome, which we would see probably in the book of Revelation. A, a, a another form of Rome that is going to come as a sort of a one world ruling power. Uh, and, and I actually think that's fairly likely, especially when you look at the other visions and you see, uh, yeah, we're gonna get in the weeds here. We'll get to the other visions, okay? Where you really go off and where you really get in the weeds is when you start trying to figure out who the 10 toes are. Just don't worry about that right now, okay? Because it actually doesn't make a point about the 10 toes. The point is, at some point, this this, this image digresses and dilutes in its power and its authority, leading to a very weak base. So let's try to just zoom zoom in on what we know here, okay? The problem with all of these views, though, about, you know, well, maybe it was the Republic, and maybe it was, is that whatever this vision is talking about, it has to be talking about all of human history up until Revelation 21. So my view, um, and, and I'm not the smartest guy, so don't take it too seriously, my, my guess is that Rome is referring to really all of human history until Christ's return. Because Rome never really officially died. It just kind of blended into the Western world. So I think, And I think there will be a recapitulation somehow of Rome. But, I, you know, I, I'm not going to fight about it. I don't know. Uh, here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Let me tell you some things we know about the fourth kingdom. Number one, that the fourth kingdom contains within it all the other kingdoms. Which of the four kingdoms does the stone hit? It's the fourth one, okay? And they all fall when the fourth one hits. Just think about that. We know that it, 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 it is reminding us of a truth here. So zoom out, zoom out from the weeds, and think about this. What is the truth that we're supposed to grab here? The truth is, is that the rule of godless government, the rule of man... Looks really powerful and looks really impressive and is very stunning, but it has very weak feet. Okay, can you grab that? It has very weak feet. It has a very weak foundation. This is why I think one of the primary things we're supposed to grab here is that, yes, man has created some pretty impressive governments, some pretty impressive institutions, some pretty impressive armies, some pretty powerful forces. But at the end of the day, it's all only as strong as its foundation, and its foundation is actually pretty weak. Because clay and iron don't mix very well. And it's not going to take much to cause the whole thing to fall. Just keep that in mind. Keep in mind that unity in a fallen world is impossible. Okay? So, you know, you want to go hug ISIS, do it. They'll kill you. Um, you wanna you wanna try to create world peace through you know policies and politicians and, and stuff, like go ahead, but it's not getting any better. This world is not going to find peace and unity through policies, through programs, through administrations, through politicians. I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you, but what this is saying is that human government is gonna gonna, gonna get worse and worse and worse, and it's gonna have to come down, okay? It's gonna have to come down. That's just the reality. So, so what? Well, the main point is that human authority and man-made institutions are impressive, but they're weak at their feet, and the bigger they grow, the weaker they are, and the less united they become. Okay. The best form, by the way, and we can argue about this, but uh, but I'm right. The best form of government, the best form of government in humanity, is not a democracy. The best form of government in humanity is a benevolent dictatorship. Have you heard that before? It's true. The most efficient government you could possibly have is one person in charge, and that person is really, really good, and really, really wise. I vote Jesus. Okay. Just saying. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. That's the government we need. So the point of the parable, the point of the vision is we need a better image, right? We need a better man. We need a better king. We need a better system. We need a better government because this one is not working. None of them have really worked. But the point of the vision is not the image. What's the point of the, the, it's not the image, it's the stone. Don't miss that. The point of this is the stone. Let's talk about the stone. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the gold of, or the God of heaven will set up a, kingdom and shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Let's try to figure out what the stone is. Are you ready? Ready? What's the stone? Let's figure it out. Let me point out some things that we know absolutely are clear in the text, and you you tell me who you think the stone is or what you think the stone is, okay? Number one, the the stone here, it's referred to as a kingdom in verse 44. Now, who came into this world talking about the entrance of some kind of a kingdom? Good job, class. Okay. Jesus, that's the best answer. Here's another one. The stone is not created, did you notice that? It comes from somewhere else. It comes hewn by, not, by human hands. So this is a non-human thing that's coming into a created universe, a non-created thing coming into a created universe. It's imported from another dimension. Okay? It says, uh, from a mountain by no human hands. So question, who came into this world that was not created, who was in fact creator, but yet took the form of creation, entering into it himself? Oh, good job. You guys are nailing this. Okay. Number three. The stone was small and seemingly unthreatening. That's what's so interesting about this. It was small and seemingly unthreatening. Question. Who came into this world with ultimate power yet took what appeared to be a very unthreatening form? Let's just say hypothetically a 33-year-old average-looking Jewish man who was God incarnate. Good job, Jonah. I wish I had stars. I'd hand them out to you guys. <laughs> think about that. I know I'm, I'm making this funny, but, but think about the seriousness of that. Jesus chose, Jesus is, is God the creator, okay? He's the second person of the Trinity. He has all power. He chose to come into this world in a very, very weak form. That's the small stone. It strikes, we know, it strikes a death blow at the foundation of man's power structures. Question, who came to purchase the title deed to the cosmos by defeating death and sin on a cross? The stone that the builders rejected has become the foundation and then took a seat of all authority in heaven. Let me ask you this. Who is coming again to make all godless authority chaff in the wind? Yes. It does not merely destroy human power institutions, but it also grows to replace them as a mountain. Remember that in the vision? The the stone doesn't stay small. It grows, and it actually replaces the image as a mountain. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, mountains are synonymous with the place where God meets with man. It's synonymous with the capital city. city. Typically, Jerusalem was on a mountain. Remember, Jesus interacted with a Samaritan new woman. He said, not on this mountain, and not on that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. Jesus was talking about a mountain to come. What is new Jerusalem when it comes out of heaven? It's a Mountain, so the stone is the kingdom of God starting with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and growing into a new mountain. Isn't that cool? Okay, glad you guys are tracking. Jesus told Peter he would build his church on this what? On this rock. Wasn't talking about Peter, sorry, to the Pope. He was talking about the confession of Peter, which happened just before that, which was what? You are the Messiah, Son of the Living God, that right there, Peter, the gospel. I'm building my church on the rock. Okay, that's the idea. Revelation 11:15. Seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, "This is at the end of all things. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." That's pretty cool. Isaiah 2:2. 2, 2, Now it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. Man, Jesus is dripping from Daniel, isn't he? The gospel is so enmeshed in this book. It's phenomenal. The last thing we see here, a couple more things actually, it's not an iteration with a sequence of kingdoms, giving way to another. It's a once-for-all kingdom. That's why Jesus says it'll never be destroyed, nor shall any other kingdom uh, take over after it. Now, who came to purchase an eternal kingdom that will never be taken away? Jesus. Christ did. This stone does not remove human authority entirely. Now, this is important. It does not remove human authority entirely. Instead, it redeems it and reestablishes it. Now, this is an important point. Jesus didn't come to take Authority away from humanity. He came to restore it Amen. because God actually still wants to rule his new heavens and his new earth with humans. But in order to do that, we need a better template for humanity. And that's why Jesus came to be the new Adam. Let me read for you Peter's words. Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 2, verse, uh, verse 4, he says, As you, as you come to him, that's Jesus. He's going to quote the Psalms. A living s- stone, rejected by man in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will be put. Whoever uh, believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believes, I'm sorry, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined to do so. So here's what Peter is pulling out from the Old Testament. He's saying that the kingdom of God is like this. It is like a bunch of builders, a bunch of masons, and they're building a structure, and they choose a cornerstone, but rather than choosing the chief cornerstone, they pick some other cornerstone and they trip over the chief one. It gets annoying. It's a a burden to them. It's frustrating. Okay, so what's going to happen, though, is that this structure is going to ultimately be destroyed and a new structure is going to be built with this chief cornerstone. You're saying, what's the cornerstone? Why does it matter? The reason it matters is because the cornerstone sets the trajectory and the quality of all the stones to follow, If the cornerstone is able to hold the weight, if the cornerstone is true, if the cornerstone is actually strong enough, then every stone that stacks on top of it will be true and strong enough. And what does Peter say we are? We're living stones stacked on top of the true stone. So Jesus, when he resurrected, he became the firstborn of a new humanity. He became a new Adam and all who are in Christ are now going to follow him into his new world. Isn't that great? It's fantastic, he is the foundation, he is the stone. So what is the rock? It is Jesus and his kingdom. Sam, when is it gonna smash the clay? Yes, it, it is and it will. That's my answer. It is and it will. I'm serious, I'm not kidding. There's, theologians call this the already not yet. There is a reality in which the stone has already begun to crush the feet of the statue or the image, but there's also a reality in which the stone is still gonna crush the image. We live in this tension, this already not yet, this middle place. So we say, Lord, come quickly. And we also say, Lord, help us to keep our feet on the rock now and live into the right kingdom. So let's consider six implications of this text. Number one, these are important. God has human history and human trajectory filed and dialed. I know that rhymes. Let me say it again. God has human history and the human trajectory filed and dialed. He knows what's going to happen. Anybody turn on the news this week? We got another war in Israel. 420 dead, thousands wounded, thousands of rockets. It's it's crazy. God's got history filed and dialed. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. He knows what's, (laughs) the, the mountain is gonna grow, I assure you. This would have been encouraging to the exilic Jews and it's encouraging to us. Number two, the Bible is credible. You know, progressive theologians, um, the, uh, the liberal theologians that want to take the Bible's authority away, they hate Daniel. They hate it. They hate it so much that they try to change the date of it. They go, oh, it was written a couple hundred years before Christ. And, and they, they try really hard to mess up the dating system because Daniel is so accurate that it shows not only that God knows what's going on, it shows that we can trust our Bibles. And that's why I'm so glad we're going to have our noses parked in it for the next few months. It's going to give us confidence. And there's two mistakes we can make when it comes to biblical prophecy, by the way. One is to overemphasize the predictive details, meaning like you're reading the newspaper in one hand and you're trying to figure out what every single thing is, and you're like, I think I know what the ten toes are. Um, what's the hangnail? You know, I mean, what's the bunion? I don't know. That's, you know, that was weird. <laughs> I say something stupid every week. That was it. There it is. Okay, that was the one. You can overemphasize predictive prophecy where you start overthinking it and getting in the weeds. But the other ditch you can go into is where you can underemphasize predictive prophecy. And actually, the Bible's credibility very much hangs on prophecy and how accurate it really is. We should be proud of the fact that our Bible predicts things that no one could ever, ever predict. Okay? Number three the trajectory of godless government is doomed. So give your allegiance to Christ, okay? Human governments will grow weaker, not stronger. Don't put your hope in policies and politicians. I'm not saying don't vote, please do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about anything political. Poli- you know, politics and policies represent people, and we love people. And actually, God wants us to be an agency of shalom and an extension of his kingdom rule. I'm just saying, make sure your feet are on the rock and not on the feet of clay, you understand what I mean by that? Don't get it out of, out of alignment. Number four, the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's growing, and it's bursting with life. Get on board. Get on board. It's growing. Number five, things are going to get worse before they get better. There is a day of judgment coming. So listen to me. If you're not a believer in Jesus, get on the right side, please. Get on the right side. His administration is taking all power. It already has it. It's just patiently waiting. God is not anti-human authority. He is anti-evil human authority. And I think we need to remember that as Christians. Sometimes we feel bad if we have influence or if we have power. Oh, that's, that's, Well, God is very much about those who have no power, but he's also very much about using those that have been given power. And that leads to my my, my last question here I want to ask before we look at the end of the passage. And that is, why did God give this vision to Nebuchadnezzar? He could have given it to Daniel. He could have given it to to one of the remnant, one of the exilic Jews. Why did he choose to give it to the pagan polytheistic king? Here's why I think he did. I think that God was not just trying to threaten Nebuchadnezzar. I think God was trying to invite Nebuchadnezzar to see that he had been given a great gift of great authority, and that he actually could step in to being an extension of God's kingdom rule. I think God was graciously and patiently inviting the person that took over the vineyard back into a rightful place, right? I think that's what God is doing there. I think God's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you think the vineyard's yours? I made it. I invested. Where do you think you got this power, buddy? I gave it to you. And you get to Daniel chapter 4, and God continues to try to patiently call Nebuchadnezzar to see that all his power belongs to God. So that's why I think, I think that this is inviting us to see that power is a good thing if it's given over to God, if it's recognized as God's power. And I wanna ask you, by way of application, what authority and what influence have you been given? Okay, everyone in here has some measure of power, influence, authority, resources, Are you submitting and surrendering that to the king of kings? God's desire is to place godly people in places of authority. Now look how this ends. This is so cool. Verse 46. Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. Okay, well that was a mistake. But you know what? The author doesn't give him a hard time about it. He's still a pagan. He's still a polytheist. I don't think this is the moment he gets saved. I just think this is the moment that he goes, whoa, There's like a serious God out there that I didn't know about. I'm going to burn some incense to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Oh, out of the mouth of the lost, sometimes God speaks such truth. For you have been able to reveal this mystery Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Okay, let me just tell you how cool that is. Uh, Babylon was the district. Remember, this is an empire, okay? Babylon was the most valuable, most important, most powerful district. You don't put some random Jewish kid in authority over the Babylonian district and you don't make him in charge of your entire cabinet and all of your authorities, But this guy did. Daniel has now become really the most powerful person next to Nebuchadnezzar that there is. And Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his boys, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So he lets him pick his staff and his staff are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're gonna come up next week. So just let me point out one more thing and we'll end. Um, This is so cool. Why did God allow this all to happen? Why did God allow this dream to come and Daniel to interpret it and blah, blah, blah? Here's what one commentator noted that I thought was so genius. He said, God prepared, now, let me, before I read this, I want you to know, there were three waves of exile. Nebuchadnezzar ripped people out of Jerusalem three times. Boom, boom, boom. Daniel and his three friends were the first wave. Keep that in mind. Now listen to this. God prepared for the arrival of thousands of exiled Judahites in 597 In 586 BC, by placing men in authority who were sympathetic to their needs. Have you ever thought about that? What if God literally put Daniel in the seat that he put him in just so that he could be gracious to his people as they came in enslaved and entered into Babylon? You think it's any accident that God puts you where he does? He wants you to have authority, He wants you to have influence. He just wants you to tune into what he's trying to do with it. He wants you to invite him as the sovereign over it and the sovereign in it. You think you got yourself where you are? You think it's because you're so charming and smart? Think again. It's because God put you there. You think it was an accident? It's not. You think power is unspiritual? It's not. None of this is true. Tune in to what God's doing. So here's a couple concluding thoughts. Tomorrow, while you're watching the news or this week, and you see the wars that are happening around the world, Ukraine, Israel, when you see our dysfunctional government that's infighting and eating itself alive and can't keep a speaker in the house and blah, 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 and you see, never I'm not going to say that. I'll get me in trouble. Um, when you see stuff that's just lame politically, remember that the mountain is coming and put your feet on it, Okay? Tomorrow when you get up and go to work or you get up and do your job or you get up and take care of your kids, remember that God puts you there and he puts you there for a reason. And when you receive the blessing of his vineyard this week, remember it's not your vineyard, it's his. He owns it, he made the investment, it's all about him, amen? Let's pray. Ryan, you can come on up. God, thank you so much that you're in charge or that you know what you're doing. God, thank you so much that you're sovereign in everything and over everything. And Father, we just pray that like Daniel, we would be fully tuned in and fully surrendered to whatever you're doing, Lord, in this world. So God, continue to inspire us to worship you, Jesus, through this book as we unpack it. In your name, amen.